Welcome to this message from Eastwood Baptist Church, one church with two locations in Bowling Green and Alberton, Kentucky. To learn more, visit eastwoodbc.org. Now, may the Lord bless you in the hearing of His Holy Word. So grab your copy, uh, copy of God's Word. Go with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. You know, somebody once said that life is a journey, not a destination. And to be honest, to my surprise, I thought it was Aerosmith that said that but <laughs> from their hit song, Amazing. But it turns out that the first person that said that was actually the American philosopher, Ralph Waldo Emerson. In other words, when we say that life's a journey, not a destination, it means that life is less about getting to the end and more about enjoying the ride along the way. Beloved, life itself is a gift, just as we saw with Miss Lucy up here. And we're to savor every morsel of time that we have been given, and we're to make the most of it, okay? Now, no doubt about it, life at times can be very hard. Oftentimes, we might equate life to like a roller coaster, right? It's got the ups and the downs. It's got the hills and the valleys. It's got the twists and the turns. I mean, life is filled with expectations and fear and exhilaration and tears and laughter, but through it all, God wants you and me to undertake this journey with joy. Evangelist Billy Sunday, he once said, to see some people today, you would think that the essential of Christianity is to have a face so long that you could eat oatmeal out of the end of a gas pipe. <laughs> oh my goodness. Hey, listen, there is nothing worse than taking a trip with a sourpuss. Regardless of the hills and the valleys, though, twists and turns, ups and downs, we are to go through this journey with joy. And that's the title of this series as we begin to walk through the book of Philippians here, The Journey with Joy. But what is joy? I, I just invite you to write this definition down. What is joy? Because this is the definition I'm going to use all throughout the series. Here's how I would define joy. Joy is the state of unshakable assurance. That's the first part. Joy is the state of unshakable assurance and absolute delight. Absolute delight in response to God and his covenant promises to you. Now, let me say it again together. Joy is the state of unshakable assurance and absolute delight in response to God and his covenant promises to you. Now, notice that I didn't say that joy is an emotion. I mean, it is an emotion, but it's not just an emotion. It is a state of being. Now, happiness is an, it is an emotion, right? It's a reaction. It comes and goes in response to the circumstances surrounding you. It's like the weather, Happiness comes and goes, but joy, joy is a fixed state of being, regardless of the circumstances, because joy looks, and this is key, looks past the circumstances to something that is fixed. It's a fixed state because it's focused on something that's fixed, that doesn't change, namely God and his covenant promises. Does God change? No. Does his prom do his promises change? No. So guess what? Our joy is there regardless of 
the circumstances. Jack Hiles, he once said this about joy and happiness. He said, happiness is untested delight, but joy is delight tested. Beloved, I say to you this morning that joy makes all the difference. And perhaps no book of the Bible will call joy out in us and equip us for joy better than the book of Philippians. Today we're going to begin an exposition uh, through the book of Philippians. This book is actually a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi. And in this letter, Paul uses the noun joy or its verb form rejoice 14 times. Now this is a short letter, not as short as other letters, but I mean as documents go, Philippians ain't that big. And 14 times in just four short chapters, he talks about joy or rejoice. That's a lot of joy crammed in to a little letter. And it's not just that he talks about it a lot, but it's where he talks about it from. You see, Paul, in this letter, along with a few of the other epistles that we have in the New Testament, Paul is writing not from a place of freedom, a place of joy, so to speak, an amusement park, or, or even in his own home. He is writing from prison, which is naturally not a place of joy. It is naturally a place that kills joy. Paul was in prison there because the authorities of his day, they, they were tired of him preaching Jesus to the people. And man, his circumstances, as you might imagine, were terrible. Maybe not as bad as they could be, but listen, if you're in jail, it's bad, y'all. Yet even in prison, Paul was overflowing with joy. And that's possible because joy doesn't look at the circumstances. It looks at God and his covenant promises. So today we're going to begin to look at the journey with joy. Today we're going to focus in on joy in the process. That's the title of this morning's message, joy in the process. Anybody here a fan of the NBA? Anybody NBA fans? We got a few here. Good deal. If you're a fan of the NBA at all, there is one particular team that has become synonymous with the phrase, the process, all right? Anybody know which team that is? That's right, the 76ers, man. In 2013, a man named Sam Hinkie was hired as general manager of the Sixers. And, and he began that year to put into play uh, 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 this plan to rebuild the 76ers and make them great again. Now, y'all might remember the 76ers from like Dr. J's day or Charles Barkley's day or even Allen Iverson's day. That day was gone. And his plan for becoming a great team was first to become an awful team. In fact, in, in Hinky's first NBA draft, he traded away their best player. Their only all-star, gone. He hoped that by being bad, that they would position themselves to get the best players each year in the NBA draft because the best team gets the worst picks. Or let me flip that around. The worst team gets the best picks. And so they hoped that by being bad, they would get the best players over the years and rebuild. And so this, this team, the 76ers, they began this intentional nosedive and their record tank, man. I mean, it was awful. I mean, in 2014, they only won 19 out of 82 games. I'm no mathematician, but that's a terrible winning percentage. In 2015, they only won 18 games. In 2016, they only won 10 games, and their fans were livid. But the organization's slogan became, trust the process. Trust the process. In fact, I even saw a fan who had made this sign that said, 
Now we're stinky, but we trust in Hinky. <laughs> well, they didn't trust in Hinky for long. Actually, they fired him through the process, okay? But nevertheless, they kept the process going. They kept drafting top players until they finally assembled a team that would make a run for the championship. In fact, they've got great players now. They kept drafting players until they finally assembled this team that could, that could do it, right? In fact, last year, the 76ers, they finished with the third best record in the Eastern Conference of the NBA. This year, they're, they're currently in fourth place, but many analysts believe that they will be the ones who win the Eastern Conference and represent the East in the NBA Finals. It looks like the process worked. Now listen, when we talk about trusting the process, did you know that if you're a Christian, you are in the middle of a rebuilding process? (laughs) Sometimes it looks like it, sometimes it don't, all right? But listen, God is taking you and who you were before you were in Jesus Christ, and he's changing you, he's making you, breaking you, rearranging you, he's conforming you to the very image of Jesus Christ. You see, that's whom God wants to make you. He wants to make you like Jesus And that is a process. And you have to trust the process. But let me say this. There is great joy in that process. Here's today's takeaway that I want you to leave with. It's this. Is that life in Christ is a process of becoming more like Christ. Life in Christ is a process of becoming more like Christ. In our text today, we see exactly what that means. So I'm going to invite you to stand. Please stand with me to honor the reading of the Word of God this morning from Philippians chapter 1. We're going to take the first 11 verses. God's Word, which is true from cover to cover and useful in our lives to the nth degree, says this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, I thank my God in all my, remem- uh, in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all are making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I told you in my heart, for you all are, because I hold you in my heart, for you all are partakers of me, uh, uh, with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray together. Fathers, we open your word today. We ask that you would speak to us. This which was written 2,000 years ago almost, Father, it is relevant today as ever. If there's anybody this morning, God, under the sound of my voice who has yet to repent and trust in Christ, we pray that they would hear the Holy Spirit, see the witness of the body here today, and would be saved. And for the Christian who is in the middle of this process, God, may they be shown joy, that they would trust the process and trust in the God who is overseeing the process. We love you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all grab your seats there. So life in Christ is a process of becoming more like Christ. And our text points uh, points us here to three truths that support that big overarching truth. First, 
is that you are indeed a work in progress, okay? You are a work in progress. Paul begins here with the typical pleasantries of the first century letters, okay? Philippians 1.1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. Now, it's sent from the Apostle Paul, his protege, Pastor Timothy, And Paul highlights here in the very beginning that they are merely servants of Christ, literally slaves of Christ. That that seems like a radical word for us, but that's the radical life that he is proclaiming to live. You see, they recognized, he and Timothy recognized that Jesus had bought them at the cross, that he had paid for their sins, that he had given his life for them, and he was their savior. He was their master and Lord, and not only their master and Lord, y'all, but they're good and righteous and benevolent master and Lord. And you know what? They gladly devoted their lives to him. He didn't make them follow him. They gladly joined their life to his servants, slaves of Christ. And he addresses this letter to all the saints in Christ Jesus who were at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. Guys, did you know that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ You are a saint. You're a saint. Every Christian is. Every Christian is a saint. You see, I became a saint in 1997 when I repented of my sins and trusted in Christ. When Christ took my sins and gave me his righteousness. And so whatever year you were saved, whatever moment that month, day, if you remember all of that, that is when you became a saint. And it's the same with these Philippians here when they trusted Christ. But along with the saints, he addresses the overseers and the deacons. Now, we're really familiar with that term deacons. But that phrase, the next one there that we're not so familiar with is that phrase overseer. That phrase, it's a technical phrase for the pastors of the church. That's what that's pointing to. The pastors of the church. You see, the New Testament uses three different words for the office of pastor. It uses the word elder most frequently. It uses the word overseer, like here, which which is related to the word bishop in the Greek. And it also uses the word pastor. And all three three of these words are, are interchangeable. They're talking about the same church office, the office of pastor. Now notice here that there was more than one pastor in this church, which I believe to be God's desire for every church, that there be a group of pastors like we have here at Eastwood overseeing the church, caring for the flock. It is too much for one man. I don't care what size the church it is. There needs to be men of God, either in vocational ministry or lay ministry, who are dedicated to overseeing and caring for the flock. Paul then speaks blessings and he expresses his heart to the Philippians. Look at verse two through five. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That was a very familiar form of letter writing there. But then he says this. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for, all, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, right there, guys, is the first mention of joy here in the book of Philippians. You see, they were precious to Paul. They were precious to Paul because they'd been so good to him over the years. But you know what? It's also also true that he had been good to them, right? It was through Paul's ministry that the gospel came to this place. You see, Philippi was nowhere near Jerusalem, right? It It was several miles away. 
over actually in another, in another continent, so to speak, over in Europe, all right? And so Philippi was this important Roman city in, in the country that we now call Greece. And Paul preached Jesus there. He established a church there on his second missionary journey. In fact, the church at Philippi was the first Christian community established in Europe. And return the Philippians, they became great supporters of Paul and his ministry. But along with these blessings of expression and affection, Paul wants to make it clear to them and to us today that we are a work in progress. Look at verse 6. Paul says that I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now the very declaration is actually an implication. It has in it an implication that you and I, we're not done yet, right? That we are works in progress. How many of you guys would say here today, I'm not who I once was? Would you say that? I'm not who I once was, right? That's me, man. I'm not who I once was. I once was a person who wasn't concerned about the Lord. I once was a person who was living for the moment. I once was a person who was living for pleasure. I I once was a person who thought that my own righteousness, while not perfect, was good enough to stand before God. But in 1997, guys, when God saved me, that all began to change. You see, I'm not who I once was. But how many of you would also say this morning that while you're not who you once were, you're not yet who you're going to be? Amen? Amen? (laughs) I'm not who I once was, but I'm also not who I'm going to be. You see, we're stuck in that middle. We're in that tension, in that process. A work in progress. And that's true of every single follower of Jesus Christ this morning. You're in that glorious middle. Where it's, it's like the middle schoolers in the room, right? I mean, you know, I remember, I, I, you've heard me say this before. When I was in middle school, I started to kind of look like a man, except the only thing that grew was my neck. <laughs> and so my neck grew and the rest of my body didn't, right? So it's, it's that awkward middle sometimes. And listen, it would be right and true for every single Christian to carry around a sign that reads, Under Construction right? That's that cute little children's song that sings these words. He's still working on me. If you know it, sing it with me. To make me what I ought to be. It took him just a week to make the moon and stars, the sun and the earth and Jupiter and Mars. How loving and patient he must be, because he's still working on me. We're still under construction, But let me say something that's very important for you to hear this morning, okay? When we think about being under construction, that is only true for those who were followers of Jesus Christ. You see, the first step to becoming under construction is to repent and to follow Jesus Christ. And if you haven't done that yet, the truth of the matter is that you are not under construction. The Bible says that you are actually under condemnation. And I don't say that flippantly this morning. I just need you to hear that. If you've not trusted in Christ, you are not under construction. You are under condemnation. You are not under construction. You are headed for destruction, right? Your sins have separated you from God. They have earned the righteous wrath of God. And based on what you've done, God is right. God is just to sentence you to hell and forevermore. 
But listen to me very carefully. It doesn't have to end that way. Praise God. It doesn't have to end that way. Jesus Christ, you see, came to live the life that you and I can't live and to die the death that you and I deserve. And he paid the sins on the cross for every person who will repent and believe on Jesus. There is not a person that can't be saved on planet Earth. If you will repent and believe on Jesus, if you'll only turn from your sins and trust in Christ, you will be saved. And if you'll do that, your destruction will be delayed forevermore. If you do that, your condemnation will be canceled forevermore. And then you get to begin the process. Then you get to be a part of being a work in progress, a work of being made holy like Jesus. Now, listen, you might hear that this morning, and maybe you're not understanding what I'm saying, that you as a Christian, you're just a work in progress, and and that might discourage you as I say that this morning. Oh, preacher, don't think I'm good enough. Well, you're right, you're not, neither am I. None of us are good enough, but praise be to God that he, the master builder, has his hands on us. And he is building us, molding us, making us, working on us. Guys, there is great joy that you are in the process. And there is great joy in the process. Life in Christ is a process of becoming more like Christ. And while we are currently a a work in progress, second this morning we see this, is that God will be faithful to complete you. Amen? Y'all ever make a project and begin it? And never finish it. Good. No, don't even ask my wife, y'all. I'm telling you, don't even ask her because I'm bad about this, y'all. Listen, this is the explicit declaration of God that Paul is making here. Look at Philippians 1 6 again. He says, I'm sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Who is the one who began the good work in the Philippians? God, almighty God. And who is the one that began a good work in these Eastwoodians? (laughs) Almighty God. And listen to me very carefully, church. What God starts, God finishes. We learned just a couple of weeks ago in the news that California, they had decided to abandoned this project that they were working on to build this high-speed railway from San Francisco to Los Angeles, and they had already spent millions, maybe even billions, but the projected cost all of a sudden had ballooned to an estimated cost of $77 billion, and so they abandoned the overall project. They're just going to do just one little bitty section. They're no longer going to do from San Francisco to L.A., but praise God that our God is not like that. Right, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. You see, we, we, we read this glorious completion, this glorious process in Romans 8, 29 and 30. Romans 8, 29 and 30 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see, that's where we're headed. Right now, we're in the middle in that awkward place where we don't know up from down sometimes. But God has it working out. God 
has us. You see, God foreknew you so that you would be complete. God predestined you that you would be complete. God called you, the scripture says here, that you might begin the process of completion. God justified you so that you would be complete spiritually and God will glorify you that you would be complete in both body and soul. You see, it's a, it's, it, it, if you're a Christian, that five-step process, notice this here, all of those are in the past tense, for new, predestined, called, justified, glorified, all in the past. But listen, it's important for us to notice all of those are in the past except one, and that is the glorified, okay? But it's important here that, to notice that here in Romans, God didn't put it in the future tense. He didn't say in the last there, and those whom he justified he will glorify. He said, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Past tense. Why? Because God promised it, and it's as good as done. He's still working on you, but the completion, y'all, is a foregone conclusion, and there is joy in that. Do you remember my, my definition of joy? I shared it just a moment ago. Joy is the state of unshakable assurance. That's what God's saying here. I'm giving you unshakable assurance, God says. And absolute delight, assurance leads to absolute delight in response to God and his covenant promises to you. Paul here in Philippians 1, 6 again says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Joy, beloved, joy, God has promised to complete you, so rejoice. In the year 1248, some Christians in Germany, they, they began to build this cathedral for the Lord there in the city of Cologne, and I've never been to it. I mean, if you ever get a chance to go to, to Germany, I mean, you should go. I'm sure it's a beautiful place. Probably the closest thing I've seen to it is the cathedral there at Duke University, and it is, I mean, it's just mind-blowing when you walk in it, Okay. But this one in Cologne is supposed to be even better. I mean, amazing cathedral. They began it in the year 1248. It's this massive undertaking. It took generations. It began, this Gothic jewel was to be the main place of worship for the Holy Roman emperors. Frederick II, one of the most powerful Holy Roman emperors of the Middle Ages, he knew that he would never see its completion and they kept building and building and building. It, 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 they continued to build it until 1473. That's over 200 years since they began. And then it had to be halted during the 1700s. Construction was finally completed. They picked it back up again in the 1800s. And it was completed in 1880, according to the original plan. Now, again, I've already, I've already confessed I'm no mathematician here, but that is 632 years and two months after the first turn of dirt. Guys, that is a long time to be under construction. But listen to me. Those folks, they never gave up, did they? They never gave up until it was done. And beloved, listen to me carefully. God is more persistent. God is more able to make good on his promises than those church architects and those church builders. God will be faithful to complete you. Rejoice. Life in Christ is a process of becoming 
more like Christ. And, and one day you're going to get there. We're going to get there by the power of God when we stand before Jesus Christ. Now notice he said he's going to make us perfect or complete us in the day of Jesus Christ. So it may not be until we see Jesus face to face, but we're going to get there, y'all. He's working on us. But while you're on this journey, finally this morning, some things in your life need to grow. Right? As you are being conformed to Jesus, there are some things that need to be added to your life and to my life. Some things need to grow. Paul has already commended them, the, the Philippians here, for their support of the ministry. We'll say more about that throughout the letter. That's a big theme in this letter, by the way. But, that, but, but, but he saw that as evidence that the Philippians were indeed already in the process of becoming more like Jesus, that they were supporting and giving to the ministry. But Paul says there are some other things that need to grow as we become more like Jesus in Philippians. Philippians 1, 9 through 11, notice what it says here. Paul says, and it's my earnest prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, the glory and praise of God. Paul says their love needs to grow, their knowledge needs to grow, their discernment needs to grow, their purity needs to grow, and their fruit of Christian life needs to grow. And beloved, here at Eastwood, that's what we need to grow in as well, as we become more and more like Jesus Christ. Christ and by God's grace that's what's going to happen listen the vegetable doesn't grow on its own it grows because it's connected to Jesus and so as I say this you've got to grow don't get all worried what I gotta I gotta get a plan together this isn't self-help this is clinging to Jesus and he will do this in you and through you so by God's grace first our love needs to grow our love needs to grow. Love for God and love for man. I mean, just last week. We finished up preaching through the measures of Eastwood. And we said that we are to be known by love. We're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we're not to love our neighbors only as ourselves, but he took it up a notch, didn't he? We're to love our neighbors as Christ loved us. If we'll only closely follow Jesus, we will grow in love. But not just our love, but he says that our knowledge needs to grow. Our knowledge needs to grow. That's what we, we need to do, right? We need to know what is right and wrong. We need to know what is truth and lie. We need to know what we believe and, and why we believe it. We need to be filled with the Bible, the Word of God, because that's where truth is found. But in this growth of knowledge, we also need to grow in discernment. Now, as you think about this, and it's kind of connected here, discernment is nothing more than knowledge applied. That's how you could define discernment. Discernment is nothing more than biblical knowledge applied. So like a person who has had their eyes open to healthy food, Man, I'm just eating clean this week. I'm just eating clean, you know. <laughs> that person who's had their eyes open to healthy food, they refuse to put junk in their body anymore. The same is true for the discerning Christian. For the discerning Christian, when our eyes are open to what is right and what is good, 
we will steer our lives away from junk. We won't fill our lives with junk anymore, but rather purity. That's where our discernment grows. And through our discernment, that purity grows, right? That we are eating good and pure things. Not only that we're wise, but that we're growing in purity. That we're discerning as a Christian of what is good and right. And then finally he says that that purity will lead to righteous fruit. Clean fruit. God-honoring fruit. There once was a farmer who was on his way home from the store. He went and picked up some seeds. And along the way, as he was bouncing along in his wagon, uh, he kind of hit a bump and it jostled some seeds. And this seed fell out of the cart into the dirt there. And soon it kind of got in the dirt and, and began to grow. And up popped a squash plant. I mean, it was, it was growing. But along with that seed right there was this other seed that was already there. And this squash plant, I mean, it grew and it got flowers and it began fruiting and all this stuff. But in the season, it was gone. It grew fast and was gone. Here today and kind of gone tomorrow. But that other seed that was already there in the ground where that seed fell began to sprout up. And it took years and years to grow. And eventually, it grew into a mighty oak tree. And it's still there today if you were to drive by where that farmer dropped it. Because guys, listen, the process that God is taking you through is not a flash in the pan. It's not a get holy quick scheme. It's not, again, the shortcut to Christianity. It is a process, and sometimes it's a long process. But again, in God, trust the process. Trust the one who's overseeing the process as he makes you strong in the Lord. Here's my final prayer. May you have joy in the process of becoming more like Christ. Hi there, this is Pastor Ben. I have something really important to ask you, but first, I want to say thank you for taking the time to make this digital connection with us through our podcast. I hope the message you just listened to was a blessing, but an even greater blessing than this digital connection would be for you to connect with us in person this coming Sunday at one of Eastwood's two campuses where we get the joy of living life together in Jesus' name. And now for that really important question, which is the most important question you'll ever answer. Where do you stand before God? Now, based on what you've done, the straightforward answer is that you stand guilty and condemned before God. You are a sinner who completely deserves God's wrath forevermore in hell. And I deserve the same thing also. I mean, every person does. Guys, that's terrible news. And even worse is the fact that there's nothing you can do in and of yourself to change that. You need a Savior. But I have good news. God loved the world so much that he sent Jesus to be your savior. Jesus came and lived the perfect life that you cannot live. And he stood condemned on the cross, dying the death you deserve. 
And three days later, Jesus was raised from the dead to prove to everybody that he is indeed the Savior of the world. And now Jesus longs to change your standing before God by making a trade with you. He desires to take what you've earned, which is the wrath of God in hell, and to give you in return what he has earned, which is the blessing of God in heaven. When this trade happens, instead of standing guilty and condemned before God, you will stand forgiven and righteous with the promise of everlasting life. So what must you do to have your standing before God changed? First, admit to God you are a sinner. Second, hate your sins. Turn from them and ask God to forgive you. And finally, turn to Jesus in faith and love, putting your complete hope in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and follow him until the day you die. Wherever you are listening to this podcast, Jesus is ready to make this trade with you. And I pray that you would trust in Jesus and be saved. Thank you again for connecting with us, and I hope to see you soon at Eastwood Baptist Church.